Dr. Brian Height, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm not really sure how we met on Twitter. I know that I saw an article that you posted a while ago about uh, an, an immunology article in The Atlantic. And essentially the gist of that article was that immunology is really complicated. I can't really be summarized that easily. Uh, I, I, ended up really taking an interest in that topic. So I asked you to be on the show. Now, I know that you have quite a lot of interests and hobbies, and we definitely want to get to that at the end of the podcast. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what it is that you do for a living. And um, I know that you're an immunologist at the University of Western. So I wanted to know a little bit, like, what is an, an immunologist? Yeah, so an immunologist is a scientist who is interested in how our immune systems work. And this is an area that's been of a lot of interest lately for a number of different reasons. The most obvious one, of course, is that our immune system is our, our main line of defense against infectious diseases. And so there's always an interest in understanding how the immune system fights disease and what we can do to improve those responses. But the immune system does a lot of other things that are also uh, of interest to people. One of those is it actually can go wrong and cause disease itself. And so, for example, there's a bunch of autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, where our immune systems actually attack our own bodies uh, and cause disease in that way. And one of the more recent things that's become of interest is actually using our immune system to fight diseases like cancer, where we can basically train the immune system to attack cancer cells. And that seems to be a really promising area for treating some disease, for treating some diseases. So, Sorry. <laughs> right. That's okay. Uh, so I guess what I was wondering is, uh, you know, one of the things that we always see commonly in marketing and advertising is that, that good old phrase, boost your immu immune system, right? Uh, which I'm sure must be annoying to someone like you. It is. Um, that's not really a thing. Uh, one could argue if you're boosting your immune system, that would be an autoimmune disease. Uh, you know, the immune system is very, very tightly regulated. Uh, it only sort of activates when it thinks that there's a problem. And when it responds, it tends to respond in a very overwhelming fashion. So you would never want your immune system to be sort of boosted or operating at an extra high level if it wasn't needed, because uh, that's actually very damaging to our bodies. And, and that's really not what you want to have going on. Actually, when you're sick, most of the symptoms you experience aren't because of the pathogen. They're actually because of the things your immune system is doing to try to fight off the pathogen. So you don't want to boost that. Oh, okay. So when I get a cold or a flu or, or some sort of virus, what you're saying is the symptoms are actually a good sign in a way because it means that my body's fighting it off? I mean, it's a mixed bag. It's a good sign because you are mounting an immune response and you're fighting the disease, but it's also a sign that you're you're ill and that your body's under stress and pressure. So that's never, you know, something that you want. Okay. And is it, um, you know, again, I mean, of course, with the pandemic happening right now, this is a, a really uh, interesting time to be speaking with an, an immunologist. But um, you hear people say, oh, take vitamin C, take vitamin D, take all these things. And again, I think that just falls into the old boost your immune system thing, doesn't it? Yeah, the evidence that taking additional vitamins help fight disease doesn't really exist. Um, obviously, if you have a nutritional deficiency, then yes, vitamins can help. But generally speaking, uh, you know, very few people in North America or Europe would have a, a meaningful deficiency unless, you know, there was something else wrong with them. 
Uh, so, you know, for most people, vitamins are, are literally just a, a waste of money. You you take the, the vitamin and a day or two later, you pee it out. Right. Okay. So the best way is just go get your, go get your blood work done. Well, and eat your veggies. Uh, and eat your veggies, right? <laughs> uh, so immunologists, the study of the immune system, would that be an apt way to, to describe it? That's exactly correct. Are you a medical doctor? I am not. I'm a PhD scientist. Okay, so you're a PhD scientist, you study the immune system. Uh, I saw on your website something called, and I probably will not pronounce it right the first time, uh, macrophage? Uh, that's close. Macrophage is usually how it's Fage. said. Fage, <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that, because that's your area of specialty, isn't it? It's, it's our major focus. So mac macrophage are one kind of immune cell. So there's lots of different immune cells, uh, and they all have specialized jobs when it comes to fighting disease and, and also keeping our bodies uh, running normally when, when we're not sick. And so macrophage, um, their name actually kind of gives away what their role is. So macro means big and phage means eater. Um, so they basically run around eating stuff. So they'll gobble up a bacteria if they see a bacteria um, Every day, our, our, our bodies turn over a lot of cells, and the macrophages are one of the major uh, immune cells that help to get rid of the cells that we don't need anymore. They, they'll just eat them and sort of recycle the contents. Um, but they're also really important when it comes to infectious diseases because they tend to be the first cell or one of the first cells that sees the pathogen. And so not only will they engulf and try to destroy that pathogen, but they also then send out signals to tell other immune cells, you know, hey, you need to come here, there's potentially a problem. Uh, so they tend to to not only help fight infections, but also to help get a bigger immune response going. Now, is everybody born with macrophages? Yes, we are. Um, they're actually some of the very first immune cells that form in our bodies. Uh, and they're always there from birth to death. Uh, they're constantly made. Uh, some of them are made in our bone marrow. Some of them just grow on their own in our tissues uh, and they're they're there yeah like I said from birth to death okay so it's the first cell that sees the pathogen what's the um what's do they also fight the pathogen or they just send the signal they fight it um, so what they'll do is uh, they'll do what we call phagocytosis which just means they eat the pathogen so they'll they'll engulf it and they'll they'll pull it into their their cell and inside of the of all cells, but in particular in macrophages, there's um, a, a compartment called a lysosome, which is just a, a really acidic part of the cell that's full of enzymes that like to chop stuff up. And they'll basically fuse that uh, lysosome with the pathogen in order to break that pathogen down and destroy it. So they can kill the pathogen and they can also activate the immune response afterwards. Um, can you clarify exactly what is a pathogen? So a pathogen would be any microorganism or virus that basically can, can infect our bodies and cause disease. So that covers a pretty broad range of um, organisms. Uh, you know, anything bacterial that infects you or a fungus that infects you would be considered a pathogen, as would viruses. Um, and then you can argue that some of the things like intestinal worms maybe qualify as a pathogen, uh, although we usually tend to refer those as parasites, but whether that's actually a different thing or not, I think is is a, a not an agreed upon point. So now I have to ask, do they, do they actually fight parasites too? Uh, they're not the main cell that does that, but they do help out. 
Okay. I was just curious since you mentioned it. <laughs> um, so how the heck did you decide to do this as a, as a main area of study? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, this all started many years ago when I was an undergraduate student. And I, I, when I started university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I like science. Um, and so my first year, I took physics and chemistry and biology. And after that, I was done with physics and chemistry. Um, and as I went more into biology, I really kind of fell in love with viruses, actually, to start with. But then I got more and more interested in how our bodies fight those. Uh, so when it came time to sort of take the next step in my career, I decided to do a graduate uh, degree, so a PhD, looking at uh, the immune system and how it fights infections. And just from there, I've, I've just sort of progressed through the, the typical scientist career path. Uh, and I now run my own lab where we look, in my case, at macrophages. And was there any particular infection that interested you or were you just fascinated by all of them? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think there's a particular infection that I've really focused on or been fascinated with. We actually tend to look at it from sort of the other direction. A lot of times we have questions of how immune cells work and a good way to figure out how an immune cell works is to find a pathogen that has a way to break that part of the immune system. And then if you can understand what the pathogen's doing, not only does it tell you how the pathogen works, but it also tells you how that particular part of the immune system should be working under normal conditions. So we've looked at all sorts of different pathogens over the years. Um, Staph aureus, which is a, a common and pretty serious bacterial infection, uh, to HIV, to Ebola. We're, we're working on COVID-19 now, uh, just because these things happen to fit into our interest in how the immune system works and by understanding what the pathogen does, we can also kind of pick apart how the immune system's functioning. So that leads me to wanting to know if you've worked with rabies. No, not with rabies. Um, closest I've had to that is we've had rabbit animals running around from time to time uh, near where I live, <laughs> but never actually worked with it. Because they, that would be a, a pathogen that would um, bypass the, the or, or not be, how does it work? Is it not detected or is it just like completely bypassed? Well, it depends on the pathogen. So basically to be a pathogen, one thing that any organism would have to have is a way to overcome the immune system in some way, shape, or form. And the ways that pathogens do it uh, is as various as there are pathogens out there. Each pathogen has its own set of tools that it uses. So there are some that can sort of turn off uh, the proteins that our bodies use to normally detect pathogens or to um, they'll modify themselves so that the the proteins that we use to detect pathogens can no longer bind to them. But a lot of them are much more active than that. And they'll actually infect the immune cells and mess up something inside of that immune cell to keep it from functioning the way it should. Can you give me an example of, uh, an, of a pathogen that actually does that? Uh, sure. So uh, a good example, classic example is tuberculosis, which is a bacteria uh, and its preferred cell that it likes to live in are actually macrophages. So the, the very immune cell that normally is tasked with killing bacteria is the cell type that this bacteria specializes in growing in and infecting. And basically what it does, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that normally when a macrophage 
eats a bacteria, it'll fuse that lysosome to the bacteria to kill it. So tuberculosis can secrete some toxins uh, into the, the macrophage that just prevent that from happening. And so now the macrophage has taken in the bacteria, but it, it can no longer deliver that lethal payload to kill it. And so now the bacteria can basically feast on that macrophage and grow, and there's not much that the macrophage can do about it. I'm just <laughs> sitting here with an open mouth because I have no idea what to say next. That is wild. Um, so how do we get rid of tuberculosis? I, I don't know a lot about it. Uh, it's hard. Um, unfortunately, it's it's actually remains a, a very serious scourge uh, globally. Um, it it generally requires fairly long courses of antibiotic treatment. Unfortunately, there's a lot of antibiotic resistant strains out there. There is a vaccine for it, the BCG vax, BCG vaccine, sorry, um, which unfortunately only works against some strains so it doesn't always protect people that well um but uh so it, it's a hard disease to fight essentially so you know the the standard treatment is several months of some pretty potent antibiotics okay so then the next question would be is there a way to genetically modify or to somehow i don't know um can you Essentially, can you create a new form or a, an artificial form of microphage that tuberculosis would not recognize or something? It might be possible, but I think the, the ethics of putting a, a genetically modified macrophage back into a patient might be a bit of a tough nut to crack. <laughs> um, but what people are trying to do that's uh, maybe a little bit less um, challenging is they're actually trying not to target the the um, bacteria, but actually to target the macrophage, uh, and essentially trying to turn off the proteins that those toxins are attacking, in the hopes that if you can keep the macrophage, or if you can keep the bacteria from affecting that part of the macrophage, maybe the rest of the macrophage will work properly and clear the bacteria. So that's, you know, not in the clinic, but it's an approach that some groups are working on. Um, people are always looking for new antibiotics or better vaccines as well to try and, and prevent diseases like that. Um, but the only spot you see people seriously trying to genetically engineer immune cells is when it comes to cancer treatment. Uh, and I think that's mostly because in a lot of cases, there isn't really many other options for those patients. So the sort of level of acceptable risk is maybe uh, a little bit higher than it would be for something like uh, tuberculosis, which usually with antibiotics you can treat. Okay, yeah, I think what I was actually thinking when I was asking that question is, is can it be like stem cells where, where they take, you know, new ones and they treat things like, I think, I think MS right now is being treated with an, a complete overhaul of the immune system? So, well, so that's um, a little bit different. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, an approach like that probably would not work for uh, an infectious disease because, when you have an infectious disease, the problem is the pathogen has a way of sort of overcoming the immune system, so sort of resetting the immune system, so to speak, if anything would actually cause problems, because now you've got a, a period of time where the patient's immune system is, is sort of been broken and you're waiting for it to grow back, and you've just left them unprotected, right? Uh, with multiple sclerosis, they've done a few... I'm not sure if they've done it deliberately, but there's been a few people who've essentially been cured because they've had to undergo a bone marrow transplant because of a cancer treatment or something like that. So basically, they've had their immune system wiped out and then replaced with 
sort of fresh stem cells. And when their immune system grows back after that, the cells that were attacking that patient's brain and causing multiple sclerosis are now gone. And sort of the, the reset immune cells, the new immune cells don't have that activity anymore. So it's a very different thing because there you're, you're trying to get rid of immune cells that are bad for you, essentially. Whereas in the case of a, a pathogen, the problem is more that the pathogen has manipulated that immune cell, but simply replacing the immune cells is just going to give the pathogen more, more food, essentially, rather than getting rid of the pathogen. Right, of course. That, that completely makes sense now. This is why you're, you're, you're also a professor, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> what do you teach? I'm curious. What, what classes? So the main thing I teach actually is a microbiology uh, lab course. So we, we teach students a lot of um, basic microbiology techniques as well as microbiology techniques that are commonly used in medical practice, in research, and in industry. Uh, and a lot of that's also teaching data analysis and, and scientific communication and things like that as well. I used to teach in an immunology course as well, but um, you know, in our department, you try to share the teaching load evenly. So other people kind of took over my, my role in that course when I took on this microbiology lab course. Okay. What, what's, um, what's something about the immune system that you just wish would be more popular? Like something that's just completely either misunderstood or, you know, like what, what, what would you recommend as something that should be more widespread? I mean, vaccines. That's an easy one. Um, it's, a, it's astounding how much misinformation there is out there about vaccinations and how safe they are and how well they work and things like that. And I, I wish that was something that was better appreciated by the general public. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of harm has come from that. And it's something we really need to sort of turn around and uh, head in the opposite direction on. What, where do you think the scientific or medical community is really dropping the ball when it comes to communicating about vaccines? I, I think actually the issue has just been a lack of communication. Um, you know, a lot of people have been out there spreading misinformation. And really, until just the last few years, you haven't seen too many people coming up and saying, well, you know, actually, that's not quite right. And this is how this vaccine actually works, or this is how that you know, or this is the actual risks of that particular vaccine or something like that. So for, for many years, uh, those anti-vaccine advocates have kind of been unchallenged. And I think now that we're, we're starting to turn that around, you're starting to see more science communicators and scientists engaging in those discussions. But um, for a very long time, that just wasn't there. And I think that's why it got as bad as it did. But I think the other thing that maybe people don't appreciate is the anti-vaccine movement is as old as vaccines. Uh, you can go back to the late 1800s and early 1900s when the first vaccines are coming out and see, uh, you know, editorial cartoons and, and newspaper articles and things like that that are almost word for word the same as what these people are saying now. So this is a very old problem, and it's just I think the internet's allowed it to become amplified beyond where it used to be, where it was just you know small groups of people talking about this amongst themselves. Yeah, I really get the feeling that the anti-vax movement is actually a business now. I mean, you know, the homeopathic industries, the natural industries and stuff like that have a lot of money that they can put behind that kind of messaging. I don't think that that money is there for science communication just yet now, is it? Not that I know of. Uh, most of the people I know who do that sort of outreach are just doing it on their own time. Um, I, I have seen some 
awards that are supposed to help people sort of establish some of these scientific outreach uh, approaches and stuff, but those seem to be very few and far between, and they seem to be targeted more at people working in, in sort of classical media, so people who are maybe working on television shows or documentaries rather than, you know, outreach on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or wherever uh, that may be. So vaccines, do they directly impact your work? Do you work on vaccines yourself or do you, um, have you worked on them or is that just something that's also just a key interest of yours? So I don't work on vaccines myself. That, I mean, it's obviously, it is immunology, but it's a whole other area of immunology that I, I just have no experience or expertise in. Um, so no, I don't do anything with that myself. Uh, some of the, like how they work is obviously basic immunology. So any immunologist should be able to talk intelligently about that. Um, but when it comes to actually sitting down and how do you design one that works well and whatnot is is far beyond anything I can, can contribute to. Okay. Uh, can I ask you a little bit about inflammation? Uh, I saw a word, again, this is on the lab website, um, efferocytis. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. <laughs> so, so yeah, inflammation and then ephrocytosis. Uh, so those are two other things my lab is interested in. So inflammation is a general name uh, for a pretty important part of our, our immune system's response to pathogen. And if there's any medical doctors listening, they'll remember the mantra they learn in med school, which is ruber, tuber, dolor, calor, which is redness, I'm gonna get the order wrong, but redness, swelling, pain, and heat, which are the classic signs of inflammation. So you can think of any time you've maybe cut your finger or had a splinter that got infected, right? It swells up, it turns red, it hurts, and it feels hot. And so that's inflammation. And that's one of the, the main ways that our body fights um, pathogens like bacteria. And so what's actually happening in that inflamed area, that, that swollen, painful area, is it's basically filling up with immune cells. And they're going in and they are, uh, you know, if they're, they're something that can eat bacteria and bacteria present, they'll be eating bacteria. Some of them will actually target and kill our own cells if those cells have been infected. So they're, they're destroying those infected cells. Um, there's a lot of proteins in our blood that can help fight infections. And so the reason why you swell up actually is there's a lot of liquid going from your blood and in, into the tissue that's carrying those proteins in to help fight the infection. Um, and so, so basically it's, it's sort of the, the frontline defense to most pathogens. You get this massive influx of immune cells and proteins from the blood that are all there trying to kill the pathogen and keep it contained. But sort of the consequences is whatever you've cut or injured now swells up and hurts and feels hot. Um, but that's what your, your immune system is trying to do when that happens. So that's inflammation. Uh, it can happen anywhere in your body, though. So uh, some people who have heart disease have uh, inflammation within the heart, for example. And it's not always in response to pathogens, and that can sometimes be a problem. And so, for example, one thing my, my lab is interested in is actually inflammation in the heart causing what's called atherosclerosis, which is why we worry about cholesterol in our diet. So this is this disease where you get cholesterol buildup in the heart, and a lot of the damage and the things that occur in there is actually because of inflammation in those cholesterol uh, buildups, so accumulations. Um, so that's inflammation. And then the other one, the other word you had was ephrocytosis. Um, so that, that translates uh, to mean to bring to the grave. 
Uh, and what that is, is actually, I think I mentioned this way, way ago at the beginning, but one of the things our immune cells do is they actually help to remove cells that our bodies don't need anymore. And so our bodies, if they don't need a cell anymore, they actually tell that cell, hey, you need to die and get out of the way. And that cell will deliberately disassemble itself. And ephrocytosis is the name for what happens when a cell like a macrophage comes along and then removes that dying cell so that it clears it out of the tissue. And so that's very important for our, our body's function. We turn over about 100 billion cells a day, and they all need to be removed in, in a way that keeps the, the tissues healthy, and that's through that, that ephrocytosis process. And there's a lot of diseases that occur because that process breaks down, and now instead of those cells being cleared, they just basically break open and fall apart, and that actually causes inflammation. Uh, so there's some inflammatory diseases that are essentially caused because your body stops clearing those dying cells, and now all those cells that should be cleared just explode, and then they cause inflammation, and then the tissue gets damaged because inflammation doesn't just damage pathogens, it damages everything, including the tissue that's that's becoming inflamed. And you know, you can imagine that's a pretty vicious circle if you start doing that, because now you're damaging cells, but they don't get cleared, so you get more inflammation, so you get more damage, and it just it's a circle that just keeps on going. Wow. Um, I have a million questions. I'm trying to get through all of them in my head and trying to pick the right one. Because to be honest, um, just listening to that, honestly, first of all, I have to say, you're obviously very passionate about this topic. And two, you're just, uh, you're making me super excited about it. So I'm, I'm just, I feel lucky right now to be able to, to, to speak to you directly and ask you questions directly like a five-year-old kid asking why the sky is blue. Um, so I just had to get that out of the way. Uh, does the immune system have some sort of like a, a puppet master? Like, how is it controlled? Or how does it work? Like, does the brain operate parts of it? How, how exactly, you know? Well, well, that's the million dollar question. And that's what most immunologists spend their time trying to figure out is how is the whole thing controlled? And they're isn't really a central control system, so to speak. And actually, who controls immune responses can change over time. So when you first have an infection, the cells that are really controlling everything, sorry, excuse me, uh, the cells that are, are really controlling things are cells like macrophages, what we call innate immune cells. And so what innate immune cells do is they recognize pathogens through sort of chemical signatures that are common among many, many different pathogens. So it's a very sort of non-specific response. They just know there's a bacteria present or there's a virus present. They don't really know more than that. But they can still trigger inflammation and other aspects of immunity to begin trying to, to attack and control that pathogen. But one other thing that that they will do is as they're eating and breaking down those pathogens is they'll run off to another type of immune cell called a T cell. And T cells are, are really a, a crazy cell. It's unbelievable that these things exist. Um, they, so all of the innate immune cells I just mentioned, they all work through proteins that detect bacteria that are, are encoded in our genome, right? These are, are proteins that have evolved over millions of years to recognize pathogens. T-cells don't do that. T-cells actually basically slice up their DNA and randomly reassemble parts of it to form a unique receptor. And the T-cell has no idea what that recognizes. It just knows it made 
a unique receptor. Um, but what can happen is, of course, maybe that recognizes a pathogen. And so what happens, you know, after one of our innate immune cells eats and breaks up a pathogen, it runs off to a T cell and it starts showing it pieces of that pathogen and being like, do you recognize this? Do you recognize this? How about this piece, right? And it just keeps showing these to, to multiple different T cells. And if it finds a T cell that can recognize that pathogen fragment, what we would call an antigen, it'll activate that T cell. And that T cell will begin to grow and divide and make millions of copies of itself. And it becomes what we call a T helper cell. And it's it's kind of a not the best name for it because those helper cells are really what then dictate the rest of the immune response. So they're the cells that will start telling antibody producing cells to make antibodies if an antibody would potentially be useful in that infection. They can increase or dampen the inflammation or change. There's more than one kind of inflammation. So they can maybe change the inflammation to something that might be a little bit better for fighting that particular pathogen. So as the immune response develops, those are the cells that tend to be the master regulators. So you kind of start off with the innate cells controlling everything, and then they sort of pass the torch onto the T cells. Uh, and, you know, there there is a role for for the nervous system for the brain as well in inflammation and immunity, but that's not as well understood. And it doesn't look like that's necessarily something that's controlling uh, an immune response. It's more of, you know, sometimes your brain needs to know that these things are going on and it's a way to for the brain to talk to the immune system and vice versa when these things are going on. So yeah, T cells, that's something that really comes up often you know, whether it's in movies or TV or whatever, when a patient has cancer, you hear stuff like blah, 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 T-cells, or when they have HIV or whatever. It seems to be the common term in pop culture, let's say. Um, so is is it, um, I, still, I still don't feel like I know enough about T-cells though, but is there really like, what, what's the role of T-cells in like cancer, for example? So... That, that's a huge topic. <laughs> I'll try and keep it simple. Uh, one thing I glossed over is there's actually two kinds of T cells. So the kind I just mentioned are the, the helper T cells, sort of the master regulators. Uh, they can actually turn on a different kind of immune cell called a cytotoxic T cell. And this is a, a cell that will then go to the site of infection and actually look for cells that have been infected and will then kill those cells. And so when we're talking about cancer, it's those cytotoxic T cells that we're really interested in. Because if you can teach those ones to attack cancer, then you can start to kill tumors. Uh, so when it comes to cancer, obviously that's what we want to happen. And it does happen sometimes, right? Sometimes people will spontaneously clear their cancer. Excuse, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. Uh, and when they, when they spontaneously clear their cancer, usually that's because they've develop some of these cytotoxic T cells that are very effective at targeting the tumor and they go in and they wipe out the tumor. But of course, um, cancer sort of fights back. And, and one thing that's maybe not appreciated uh, among people who, who don't work in, in the medical fields is actually cancers manipulate the immune system to help themselves grow. Uh, and one of the things they do is they manipulate those helper T cells I mentioned earlier to actually try and turn those helper T cells into a type of T cell that's going to turn off the immune system. They're going to try and, um, you know, keep those cytotoxic T cells from going in and killing the tumor or keep too much inflammation from happening inside of the tumor because too much inflammation can kill a tumor. So it's it's a very complex 
uh, area of science, the, the immunology of cancer, because our immune system can recognize and kill cancer, but successful cancers find ways around the immune system. And it's always this sort of give and take between those two. And when it comes to trying to harness that in the clinic, obviously we're really trying to push the, the immune system to target and kill uh, the cancer, or at the very least find ways to sort of turn off some of the ways that cancer can use to prevent the, the immune system from targeting the cancer. Yeah, there's actually a book called The Emperor of All Maladies that about cancer. It's, it's I think, one of the highest uh, recommended books anyways about that. I haven't read it yet, but I was curious because uh, I, I really want to learn more about the immune system, about cancer. Uh, are there any kind of more pop culture books that you would recommend for somebody who's curious uh, about, about the immune system, about pathogens and viruses and all that stuff? I'm sure there is, but I don't know offhand uh, any any good examples. Um, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of the the books on the immune system that I tend to to gravitate towards are more orientated at at scientists than the, than at a, a more public audience. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there's some good ones out there. There certainly that uh, that article by I think it was Ed Young in the Atlantic that you mentioned at the beginning is an excellent place to start. He he did an exceptional job for for such a relatively short article of, of explaining the immune system. That's one of the reasons I tweeted it because I've seen so many people try and fail to explain the immune system in the way that he did, and yet he he did such a good job. I was really impressed by that article. So that's that's why I, I was tweeting that out when when that article was uh, first published. Is that something that you've considered? Have you have you thought about writing for pop culture? I don't think I'm that good of a writer, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I write scientific papers as part of my job, and that's a very odd way of writing. Um, it's unfortunately very dense and hard for other people to read, and I don't think that lends too well to necessarily writing well for a, a public audience. Um, so I've never really thought about doing that myself. And it's funny because I, I I find that you're a very good explainer, so I was I was like oh well maybe you could hire a ghostwriter and and get somebody to, to <laughs> well, just listen to you talk about it. Well, maybe then, but uh, I I guess I taught immunology for enough years that I, I'm used to explaining it without having to to be super complicated about it. But uh, yeah, writing writing is a whole art in and of itself, um, and it's certainly one that I I am not super good at. So. Okay, I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> um, one of the things, uh, you, you know, you just mentioned teaching, something that I heard, oh, this was a while back, this was even before COVID. Um, and I, I wish I remember the source, but I heard that there was a decline or rather a lack of grad students in infectious diseases. It was really hard to fill uh, postdoc positions in the US and stuff like that. Have you seen, uh, have you seen that yourself? Or is there a resurgence now because of the pandemic? Uh, I mean, that's always a, a complicated question, um, especially you know, in a lot of cases, you're you're talking about stuff that can be very regional. Um, you know, I I know we've always had a pretty good pool of students at our university that we can draw from. Uh, recruiting postdocs here, though, tends to be more of a challenge. Uh, and we always get stuck with the, you know, if I'm going to move countries and come to Canada, why would I go to London, Ontario, when two hours down the road is Toronto? Um, you know, the big, vibrant metropolis versus a, a smaller city, uh, you know, that doesn't have the same attraction. So that sometimes is an issue uh, for us. 
I know in the States, there were some concerns about it because of some of the changes with the visa system that uh, the Trump government was putting into place or had put into place. I don't know how much of an impact that actually had in the end, because of course, soon after they made some of those changes, COVID came along and nobody was moving anywhere. Um, but those always are concerns and, and factors like that can really alter the ability of, of scientists to fill positions because uh, science is very international. Most people you know, will, will live in, and work in more than one country during their scientific careers. Uh, and you know, if there's a barrier put in the way of that, that actually tends to hurt more the country that's put in the place that barrier because now all the people that used to go there to work and, and to train people no longer can do that. Um, but it, I, not globally, I don't think that's ever really been an issue for infectious diseases or, or immunology. Okay, yeah, that's why I wanted to ask, you know, somebody in Canada, because I, I you know, again, it's something that I had read about, I think it was the northeastern United States, but uh, I'm glad to know that there's no shortage of students interested in infectious diseases. Now, do you find with the current pandemic, you said that you were working on COVID-19 right now? Yeah, we are. And so what exactly are you guys doing? So we're really sort of looking at one very specific part of COVID's biology. And it's actually um, part of how COVID might overcome our immune system because COVID seems to have a number of different tools it can use to sort of misdirect or overcome our immunity. And so actually, if, if, you remember a couple minutes ago, I was telling you how immune cells will break up a pathogen and go and show it to T cells. It looks like COVID can interfere with that process. And so that's what we're actually looking at. We're looking to see if COVID can, in fact, prevent innate immune cells from showing pieces of COVID to T cells and trying to understand how it goes about doing that. Uh, so that's what we're looking at and, and trying to figure out. Does your do you find yourself constantly thinking about work? Because to me, again, I'm I'm absolutely excited and and just fascinated. Uh, I can't imagine being. I mean, what's it like being in your shoes? Do you constantly think about this this stuff? I wouldn't say it's constant. I do make a very conscientious effort when I'm at home to be at home and not at work. If you know what I mean. Um, so I try not to to think about it all the time. But I mean, certainly. It drives my wife nuts, but I have a voice recorder on my cell phone and it's not uncommon at two or three in the morning for me to wake up because I've had a, a thought in my sleep and to sort of turn on my phone and record to myself so I can listen to my idea the next day when I'm a little more awake. Um, I'd like to tell you that usually those ideas are great, but actually they're usually horrible, but I still can't stop myself from doing it. So, uh, but, you know, I, I most most scientists, you know, when they're at home, want to have a home life. They don't want to be at home only thinking of work. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but I also think it's, it's kind of an obsession. I think that's what uh, makes scientists and artists very uh, similar in that you guys are curious naturally and uh, obsess over, over problems and want to, want to solve them, want to investigate them. Uh, you know, in, in a way you're kind of a, a discoverer an explorer. Yeah. And, you know, it can at times become pretty consuming. Um, but you always have to have that balance in life, right? So, you know, it, it's, it's always a work in progress, I guess. I'm trying to find that balance and, and get it right. Well, 
I know one thing about you is that you happen to have goats. Is that is that right? <laughs> well, I think it'd be more accurate to say my wife has goats. Um, <laughs> we we do live on a small farm, and my wife's full time job is basically a farmer. Uh, so yeah, we have a number of farm animals, including goats, um, and I like them, <laughs> but I don't have too much to do with the actual raising and breeding of the goats. I mostly just go out there and play with them. Can you share, uh, you posted a tweet of a very funny looking goat uh, this week, and it was hilarious. Do you want to share a little bit about uh, what's going on with the goats right now? Oh, you know yeah. I'm oh, sorry, I, it yeah. took me a second to remember what that was. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> yeah. so our goats are relatively young. And the uh, our, our buck, whose name is Darwin, is just getting to that age where he's starting to notice girls. Um, and goats, male goats, are disgusting animals uh, when they're in the presence of a lady because they do things like pee on their face. Uh, so he is rather fragrant right now and um he's very uh pushy because <laughs> he's trying to he's him and and we have a weather that lives with him uh they have their own sort of area on the farm and they're kept away from from the girls because uh, you know you don't want them just breeding whenever um but they're he's up against the fence all the time trying to get at the ladies and he's busy peeing on himself and being really stinky uh which is kind of entertaining but sort of disturbing at the same time yeah I've never laughed so hard I show I immediately showed the picture to my girlfriend and she she also had a good laugh so thanks for that one um goats so why why goats why I mean do you guys make cheese and stuff so I mean so the goats are actually a fairly new addition to the farm uh we are raising oh I better get this right or I'm going to be be in trouble with my wife um we were raising they're called Nubian goats. So that's a it's a relatively rare breed of milk goat um, that are fairly popular with sort of people who run small farms. Uh, and so the plan with the goats in terms of sort of the business side of things is essentially to breed them and, and to to sell uh, their offspring. Uh, but I'm a, a fermentation enthusiast, let's call it that. So, you know, the sort of byproduct of, of breeding goats is you get a lot of goat milk. And so, yeah, I'm hoping to make cheese and yogurt and all that kind of stuff at home uh, once the girls are, are old enough that we can start milking them. Okay, yeah. So here's the thing, because this leads us into when you know, the minute you said fermentation, I have to talk about the beer. Um, <laughs> because here's the thing, I actually don't drink alcohol. Uh, my my body just does not tolerate it. I used to. Uh, and then it started making me sick. So um, unfortunately, I'm not a beer drinker. But um, I guess you are if you're uh, if you're making beer. Yeah, so I've been um, brewing beer at home for 23 or 24 years now it's been a, a long-term hobby of mine um most of the beer i drink we make and uh i don't i don't know what else to tell you about other about it other than that it's a well, relaxing hobby you, i guess yeah see i don't know anything about beer so i guess the thing i'm curious about is is that something that's easy to do at home and if so um you know what what what's the typical process or like do you have like a special recipe 
I mean, it can be as easy or as hard as you want it to be. I think that's one of the, the attractions of the hobby. Um, up until a few years ago, I had what was basically a miniature version of the sort of thing you would see if you went to a commercial brewery. So, you know, very complicated, lots of bells and whistles, took a long time to brew beer, but it was a great way to spend a Saturday. Uh, I have a, a five-year-old son now, so when when he came along, that had to go because, you know, the idea of taking a whole day to, to brew beer uh, just wasn't viable anymore. And so there's other ways you can brew beer where you uh, can greatly accelerate the process and, and simplify it and, and finish it in a few hours. And so that's that's the way that I brew now. I don't know how deep you want me to go into the details here, but, you know, it's sort of a, a choose your own adventure. Uh sort of the on the the quickest easiest simplest end you can you can literally buy kits that are essentially pre-made but unfermented beer you put it in a bucket dump in some yeast and you know two weeks later you got beer uh and on the the other extreme i mean there there are people who malt their own grain and grow their own hops and all of that kind of stuff and and literally start from from scratch and and do the whole thing and and though i mean those people are insane but there are people out there that do it so and then obviously between those two extremes are a whole range of different ways you can go about brewing beer so you mentioned to me that you've done podcasts where you talked about the microbiology of beer uh what's so fascinating about the microbiology of beer so i'm (laughs) I come from a microbiology background, so my answer would be all of it. But uh, really, so one one part of brewing that I've always been interested in, and that I have you know uh, some some fair amount of experience with, is is brewing with sort of wild microorganisms. So instead of using yeast strains that have been used in breweries for decades, if not centuries, you instead capture yeast from the environment and ferment with that. And, uh, you know, a lot of those, those microorganisms are, are very unique. They do different things than what conventional brewers used to do, um, produce, you know, unique flavors and, and can ferment some stuff that maybe brewers yeast can't. Um, so they're, they're interesting to play with and work with. And uh, it's, it's a pretty niche group of brewers. You know, most brewers aren't interested in that kind of stuff, but uh you know, for those who are interested in, in those types of brewing and, and, and using those types of organisms, it's a, a very interesting uh, thing to talk about, I guess. Yeah, it's funny because my, so you know, I do a tiny world on Twitch uh, where I look at stuff under my microscope and my audience is always asking me, Julie, can you can you try to capture yeast and, and show us what it looks like? And I, I'm, I'm like, I would, but I have no idea how. Uh, what's the quickest, easiest way to capture yeast from the environment? From the environment? Oh, I was going to say the easiest way is you open up the little jar of Fleischmann's yeast in your your pantry <laughs> and just put a little bit in water and then put that on a no. slide. Uh, <laughs> that would be the easiest way. Um, for, I mean, from the environment, uh, this is going to sound a little crazy, but actually the easiest thing to do is grate a little bit of potato into a, a pot of water and boil it. Uh, and then strain out the potato bits and add some some uh, table sugar to that uh, to the liquid, and bring it to a boil again. Put it in a jar, and put it somewhere where some house flies or bees or wasps are likely to fall in. And uh, you know, probably, well, if you're if you're lucky in a week or two, you'll have some wild yeast growing, and if you're unlucky in a week or two, you'll have a giant ball of mold. But uh, that's 
maybe one of the easier ways about, about going about doing it. Uh, when we do it for brewing, we use maybe a few more tools than that to, to improve our odds, but essentially that's what we're doing. It's, it's a bit of food that yeast are going to want to eat and you put it somewhere that there's a chance you're going to have yeast fall into it and away you go. Yeah, that's not actually not too complicated. Uh, but uh, and, and I mean, worst comes to worst, the mold is going to be beautiful under the microscope too. So there's that bonus, you know? Yeah. Uh, how do you, so are you experimenting a lot to find the right kind of, um, I don't know, the right measurements or the right amounts or whatever? Like, are you constantly experimenting or do you have your own like set recipes now? So I've been brewing long enough that I just sort of make up recipes on a whim and I, I basically know what I'm going to get out at the end. So yeah, I've, I've almost never brewed the same recipe twice. That's boring. Um, you know, the thing that attracted me to, to brewing early on was the ability to explore and, and try, you know, styles of beer that I didn't have access to. And that's still sort of an interest today. Uh, and whether it's brewing a recipe or sorry, brewing a, a style of beer I don't have access to or something that's maybe hard to find, or sometimes it's just trying out a new ingredient to see what it, what it tastes like in a beer. Uh, you know, that's what keeps a lot of my interest up these days. And what about beer names? Like naming the beers? Yeah. Do you name your beers? I used to, I've gotten lazy on that front now though. <laughs> <laughs> now I usually just call them what they are. You know, it's like summer IPA or, <laughs> yeah. Huh. So other than uh, goat keeping, beer brewing, uh, what else are you up to? Uh, so I keep bees. That's my one contribution to our farm. Uh, I have a couple of beehives out in the back. Um, so that's uh, something I actually enjoy quite a bit more than I, than I expected. I've only been doing it for a few years and it's become something I actually find very enjoyable. Yeah, it's interesting because my partner and I are pretty much planning on moving to the East Coast, uh, you know, to get a, a decent sized property. And that's one of the things that I'm actually, I'm really starting to take an interest. It's beekeeping. Um, is that something that is hard to, to take up? Uh, you know, would you recommend, uh, I don't know. I mean, how did you come across it? So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very easy hobby to pick up on. Um, it's also very, something very easy to become sort of all consuming as well. Uh, so I've had to restrain myself somewhat, uh, to keep things at a, a reasonable level. Cause you know, the line between a hobby and a job is, is sometimes not quite as obvious as you might want it to be. Um, it's, um, you know, in my case, my interest in it was just sort of, I, I saw some beehives while driving home from work one day, just after we had moved to the farm. And I was sort of thinking to myself, Hey, I wonder if I could do that. And I started, you know, watching some YouTube videos and uh, reading some articles and stuff on it. And pretty quickly learned that at least at a, when it comes to small scale beekeeping, it's not that hard uh, and really doesn't require, you know, too much equipment or expertise. And so um, it'd be, two or three years ago now, I can't remember, I got my first beehive um, and I had a successful summer. I was able to split it so that I had two beehives. Uh, the next year I grew out to four uh, and now that's basically what I, I operate at. I have a, a fifth hive that's sort of used to raise new queens if I need new queens, but I don't process honey from that or anything. So I have sort of four working hives. Um, and, you know, the 
the level of sort of involvement and difficulty is also sort of you can pick it yourself. So you can buy, you know, pre-assembled, ready to roll beekeeping equipment, or you can buy stuff that's sort of disassembled and you have to put it together. So, you know, fairly basic carpentry skills, you need to be able to, you know, hammer a nail and, and use some glue and paint things right down to, I don't do this, but some people will make all of their equipment from scratch. So they'll, they'll cut all the lumber to the right size and then cut out all the, the, finger joints and all those other parts and, and put it all together. So, you know, it's it's a hobby where you can kind of pick the level of effort you want to put into it and, and the size of the operation that you want, and you can build to to whatever you want it to be. And I don't know, I just find it very relaxing to go out and open up a hive and uh, you always have to inspect hives to make sure the bees are healthy and that the queen's laying eggs and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, to go spend an afternoon in the sun uh, checking out your your hives to see how they're, all the bees are doing is actually a pretty relaxing way to spend an afternoon. Yeah, I mean, really, you have beehives and goats and farm, and you're really um, close to nature, aren't you, you and your wife? Yep. Yeah, we uh, we enjoy living in the countryside and and having all these different things going on uh, around us. And uh, one one thing we really enjoy about our property actually is two thirds of it is forest. Um, which is another reason why we got goats because they can live in the forest. They love the forest, but it's also nice for us because we can go back into that area. Um, and there's all kinds of, uh, neat plants. Um, we've got raspberry bushes back there galore. So we get fresh raspberries all the time. Sometimes you'll see deer back in there. I mean, it's, it's really a, a nice, uh, a nice environment for us. Yeah, well, there's something to be said about living kind of closer to nature and, you know, relaxing. I mean, that's one of the things I, for, for myself personally, is I want to get out of Ottawa, um, out of the city kind of life. Uh, let's wrap this around back to the start then. Does relaxation, does being out in nature, does that impact the immune system in any way? It does, actually. So uh, anytime we're stressed, uh, some of the, the hormones our bodies produce actually do affect the way that the immune system functions. Uh, and it can be good and bad, kind of depending on circumstances, but any sort of long-term persistent stress tends to eventually suppress the immune system. Uh, so, you know, whether it's spending time outdoors or reading or, or re relaxing, you know, if you're living a higher stress lifestyle, finding those things can actually be somewhat beneficial in terms of keeping your immune system operating properly. And I think we've all experienced, uh, you know, going through a really stressful period and then getting sick right after. And oftentimes that's because of that, that stress associated uh, immunosuppression. Hmm. And you, you quickly mentioned when earlier when we were talking, uh, eat your veggies. Uh, <laughs> so I'm assuming that uh, that also is very beneficial. I think, uh, eating your veggies, eating your fruits and veggies. Um, I guess that would be another way for people to take better care of themselves, eh? Yeah, I mean, good diet's always a good decision, right? Uh, you know, it obviously uh, obesity is, is a, a problem and I, it sounds strange, but actually a lot of the problems that come from obesity are the immune system's fault. Uh, so, you know, anytime you're eating a diet that helps to limit some of those, those types of issues, you're gonna have a, a better health overall and a better functioning immune system as well. Nice. 
Well, Dr. Height, listen, it's been absolutely amazing speaking with you. I feel very privileged to have had the chance to uh, pick your brain and to uh, to really get to know more about you as well uh, as not just the immunologist, but also the person with a lot of hobbies. <laughs> uh, so it's been a lot of fun. I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed my time. Good. All right. Well, uh, listen, take care. And um, what's your Twitter account so that people can follow you? Uh, it's at uh, Brian Height. So B-R-Y-A-N-H-E-I-T. Wonderful. All right. So we'll share that on the, the link for the podcast as well. And thanks again. Thank you.